All right, guys. Well, if you're new with us, welcome. My name is Dustin Daniels. Glad that you're here with us and uh, that you're here to worship with us this morning. Um, if you need a Bible, we got Bibles in the back. My notes are in the foyer. Those are both our gifts to you, so take those home. Um, and we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 through 24 today as we continue our verse-by-verse study in Matthew's gospel. Um, and as you turn to Matthew 11, let me, let me review from last Sunday. Jesus, he taught us about the most underrated man in all of Scripture, John the Baptizer. Now, look, I, I know when I say John the Baptizer, that's not good English. I get that. But see, um, not having good, bad English is good theology. Because John, he, he wasn't... A Baptist. That just seems a little too denominational, right? So he was, he was a baptizer. The, the Greek is actually he was an immerser, John the immerser. So by the way, there's, there's several of you who have come up to me over the past month who have not been immersed. And if that is you, um, let's get a date on the calendar to get you immersed and, and baptized. We want to celebrate that as a church. So you can see me after, after the service. But John the baptizer, uh, what made John so special is that he had the divine privilege of actually pointing people to the Christ. He was the, the prophet that got to say, look, that guy right there, that's the Messiah. That's God in the flesh walking around on the earth. Obviously, none of the other prophets did that. And because John did, though, Jesus said this, that he was the greatest man who ever lived, obviously, up until that point. Now, Jesus asked uh, the crowd a crucial question last Sunday. And we know it was important because he asked it three times in a row. He asked the crowd, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? And we answered that question three separate ways, didn't we? And then as I closed my sermon last, last Sunday, I asked you guys uh, a crucial question as well. And that is, why, why are you here? Why do you come to church? There's two vertical reasons that I gave and two horizontal reasons. The vertical reasons go like this. Horizontal reasons go like this, right? It's the cross. We, we come here first and foremost because we worship the Lord. That's why we come. We come together as a church, as a community to worship the Lord. And, and I pray that you want to do that. I, I pray that you don't come here out of guilt, habit, out of tradition. Um, and I, the other vertical reason that we come to church and we, we gather, not only to worship the Lord, but we experience God verse by verse. And as we experience God verse by verse, what you're actually doing is you're preparing to die. You're preparing to see Jesus face to face. It's a beautiful thing. The horizontal reasons is that we want to serve others. We want to love on people. We want to serve others. And then fourthly, we talked about being trained and discipled. We want to fulfill the great commission. We want to share Jesus day by day. Well, that's a review from last week. Today, Jesus turns from John's doubt, really, to the crowd's indifference. So John the baptizer, he preached repentance. Jesus also preached repentance, right? He said, repent. Why, Jesus? Why, John? Because the kingdom of God is here. It is near. And to prove that God's kingdom was on the earth, Jesus taught in a way that was so powerful that the crowds, they left there and they were, quote unquote, they were astonished by Jesus' teachings. Jesus also provided miracles to prove that what he was teaching was true. And it, once again, the miracles also revealed to the crowd that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He is God wrapped up in flesh and bone. You know, I think about that. And it occurred to me that Jesus, he didn't step down off his throne in heaven where angels constantly sing, holy, holy, holy. 
I mean, Jesus wasn't born of a virgin to bypass human sin, to live a perfect life, to die a substitutionary death, to impress us. He didn't do that to entertain us. I mean, think about it. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Christ here, he did these things for one reason, and that is for people to repent of their sins and to embrace him as their Savior. Now, a fundamental teaching of Scripture is that God demands a response when the gospel is presented. It's one thing to have a legitimate concern or maybe an honest doubt about Jesus, because John taught us that last week. But when our attitude turns critical, uh, when our hearts become indifferent to the gospel, that is called sin. And that sin is in the form of unbelief. And that, that unbelief is what Jesus addresses today. So let me give you a disclaimer here. Today's message, next Sunday's message, these are tough messages to hear. We're going to be talking about judgment and hell today. And not we, Jesus. Jesus has never preached an easy beliefism. And what I mean by that is, you know, all you have to do to be saved is just come as you are. Just, just you know, everybody close their eyes and, and you say a silent, sincere prayer in your heart. You simply walk the aisle or, or just sign the card or, or just raise your hand or you pray the sinner's prayer. Look, guys, none of those means to salvation is in Scripture. Not one of them. Jesus has never told anyone to simply believe and all their problems are going to go away. Remember when Jesus turns away would-be disciples? People said, I, I'm going to follow you. And he goes, no, you're not. Your heart's not right. Your heart's not right. Jesus says, if you want to be his disciples, you got to pick up your cross and die. Jesus says, if you want to be a disciple, you got to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Holy shnikes, Batman. And he didn't even explain that. He just said it. How's that for a gospel presentation? Don't worry about the three circles. Just, just state that verse. And then Jesus ended last Sunday with verses 14 and 15 of Matthew 11. He says, if you're willing to accept it, if you're willing to accept that John is the Elijah, he is the Elijah, who is to come. And let everyone who has ears to hear, listen. In other words, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? So for those who had ears, they understood that since Jesus said John was the Elijah, that Jesus, that meant that Jesus is God. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And today, it's an amazing passage. Today, it is God himself who explains with crystal clarity here what it means to reject him as Lord and Savior whenever the gospel is presented. Now, what's that mean for you? It means everything. Guys, it means everything. It's, this is eternal life or eternal death. It means everything this morning. So if you would, if you would please stand now for the reading and the honoring of God's word. Hey, Jeff, can you close this door? Or Thank you, John. All right. Let's go ahead and read these verses together. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 24. Just as we sang those songs together, let's raise our voices together as one church. Verse 16. To what should I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children. We played the flute for you. But you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he's got a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look, he's a glutton. He's a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. 
Then he proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Woe is right. Guys, these are the... These are the words from God this morning. They are authoritative in our lives, at least if we're disciples of Jesus. They're authoritative. And they're authoritative because they are inerrant. They are without error. And the reason they are without error is because they were inspired. The Holy Spirit of Almighty God used a weak and feeble man, Matthew, to pin these words. And because they're inspired, they are infallible meaning they will never fail us. There is so much truth in this passage today. The psalmist writes, if a person does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. He will prepare his deadly weapons and shoot his flaming arrows. Father in heaven, we pray that you would meet us right where we are today. We pray for soft hearts to receive what this passage means and what it means for us. We pray that you would forgive us of our sins, for they are many, and you would teach us, Lord God, how to turn from those sins and turn towards you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's take a, ver uh, a look at verse 13, 14, and 15 here. And give me a running start here at this. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. And then Jesus says, let everyone who has ears listen. So Jesus says this, and it's like he, he pauses and he looks around at the crowd. And what's he see? He sees people yawning. Oh. Hmm. People thinking about lunch. People dozing off, falling, falling asleep. He sees people who are indifferent, people who are consumed with themselves. So Jesus asks another question here. He, he says, to what should I compare this generation? This type of question was commonly asked. It was really a, a teaching expression in the first century. So what Jesus is doing, he's setting them up for a parable or some type of illustration. But that terminology there, this generation, so Jesus borrows that terminology from the Old Testament. I love it because it's, it's miraculous how the Old Testament and the New Testament, just like hand in glove. Look at this. Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. God's people, his people, God's people have acted corruptly towards him, towards God. And this is their defect. They are not his children, but a devious and crooked generation. Deuteronomy 32, 20. God said this, I'm going to hide my face from them. I'm going to hide my face from God's people. I will see what will become of them for they are a perverse generation. They are unfaithful children. So Jesus borrows that Old Testament language here. And he says in verse 16, he says, you guys are like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to other children. So don't, don't miss this. Jesus is not mincing any words. He, he calls 
the crowd a group of children. And they're adults. There may have been some kids in there, but he's talking to the adults. And the sense here is that these are not good little boys and girls, but they're spoiled little brats. Now, there is a difference between being childlike and childish. To come to faith as an adult, it means that we need to lay down our pride. We need to become childlike in our faith because it is only by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, that anybody is saved. We do not come to faith in Christ by doing good things or by doing good works. It is all God all the time. But the crowd is not childlike. They are childish. So Jesus points that out. And they're acting like children because all they do is complain. Nothing makes them happy. So back to verse 16, he says, you guys are like children sitting in the marketplaces. So the marketplace, that was where the adults went to do business and to socialize. So the children, what they would do is they would play games while they waited. Two popular games at that time, one was called wedding and one was called funeral. Weddings and funerals, obviously two major social events. So children, what they would do is they would just mimic what they saw the adults doing. Weddings involved the music and dancing, so the kids, they would, they would play that game. They, they expected everybody to dance when the kids played their imaginary flutes. That's what they would do. When they played the funeral game, they expected the other kids to cry and to mourn when they played the imaginary funeral dirges. It's almost like an ancient game of of Simon Says. So with that background, back to verse 17, or moving on to verse 17, Jesus says this. He says, we played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. You didn't dance at the wedding. So we had to change the game. So we, we changed it, and we sang a lament. We sang a funeral song, but you know what? You didn't mourn either. So like unhappy little children, this generation found it easier to whine and moan and complain than to play the game. In other words, all you guys are doing, you just bark orders and you're just criticizing other people uh, when they're actually doing some things around here. It was happening in Moses' day. It was happening in Jesus' day. Man, aren't you glad it's not happening today? Aren't you, aren't you glad that we're done with all the complaining and moaning and telling people what to do? The more things change. Yeah. See, these childish adults that Jesus speaks to are, are like people today that find fault in every church that they attend. They hop around from church to church. Hippity hoppity, hippity hoppity. They complain about this and that, and they never serve. But they're always giving unsolicited advice. People complain about the sermons. It's too short. It's too long. He's too serious. He doesn't tell enough jokes. He's too political. He's not political enough. He doesn't know how to connect. Please know, guys, that true preachers of the gospel, they've got an audience of one. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. People complain about the music. Too much music. Not enough music. It's too loud. It's not loud enough. You just can't win, right? You can't win. I think when people complain about the music in the church, they they need to go volunteer at the hospital. They need to go volunteer at a nursing home. They need to go volunteer at hospice and get their eyes off themselves. People complain about the temperature. It's too hot. It's too cold. Can't win. And on and on and on the complaints go. The one thing that all these people have happening in Moses' day, Jesus' day, and today is that when people complain like that, they think the church is about them. Church is never about us. It is always about God. These people are, are armchair quarterbacks who really never get into the gospel game. So Jesus is pointing out how unhappy, how disgruntled, how sulky, 
They're just sulky. These folks are also quarrelsome, and they're inconsistent as well, irresponsible, and just fickle. We're just a fickle people, aren't we? So as no game pleases a moody child, nothing pleases Jesus' generation. Verse 18, Jesus continues. He says, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he's got a demon. So people went out to see John the baptizer because he was the first prophet Israel had in over 400 years. And at first, they enjoyed the excitement of his preaching. They tolerated him. But John would not let them be neutral bystanders. He called for them to make a choice. When they saw that they had to choose, the majority of people, especially the scribes and the Pharisees, they chose not to believe. And because they chose not to believe, John rebuked them for it. Now, nobody likes to be rebuked. Nobody likes to be reprimanded. So what do people do when all eyes are on them and, and someone points out their sin? What do they do? They get angry. Maybe they, they deflect a little bit, trying to use some humor. Oh, John, come on, man. You're, you're just crazy. You got a demon. Now, the crowds respected John. So that phrase there, he has a demon, Probably should not be taken literally. It's, it's more of the context. John, you're out of your mind. John, you need to calm down. You're, you're, you're like this religious fanatic. So key point number one. Instead of accepting John's rebuke of their wickedness, the crowd rebuked John's righteousness. Isn't that fascinating? Instead of accepting John's rebuke of their, their wickedness for them to change, they rebuked his righteousness. John graded on their immoral and their unspiritual nerves. So what did they do? They started to lash out at him. They started saying things like, come on, John, can you preach on anything else besides repentance and hell? I mean, this is, you know, this is just one note. Move on. We got it. And he said, evidently, you don't got it because you haven't repented. John's message really was this idea of the funeral mode that Jesus is talking about here. Verse 19, Jesus continues. He says, the son of man, the son of man, that is a title, Jesus' favorite title for himself. He says, I came eating and drinking. And you guys say, look, this guy is a glutton. And he's a drunk. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So just as John was living in funeral mode, Jesus comes and it's a celebration time. The Son of Man, the Messiah, God in the flesh is walking on the earth to forgive our sins. It is time to have a wedding. Jesus ate. He drank just like any normal person. He lived an everyday Jewish life. He attended parties. He attended dinners. So in other words, Jesus did the things that John was criticized for not doing. And then the people accused Jesus of being a glutton and a drunk for doing the very things that John didn't do. So which is it? I mean, make up your mind. You can't have it both ways. So what Jesus does, he points out their hypocrisy and he says this. Verse 19, he says, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. A statement on wisdom, it refers to the godly lives of both uh, John and Jesus. See, the world's wisdom produces worldly wisdom. Godly wisdom, that's a gift that comes from outside of this world. Godly wisdom comes from the Creator, and that's why Jesus had to step down from heaven to solve all of our problems. Now, what's Jesus mean when he says wisdom is vindicated by her deeds? Well, in the New Living Translation, it, it reads this way. Wisdom is shown to be right by its results. So, in other words, if someone makes a decision, the consequences demonstrate whether that decision was either wise 
or unwise. Your translation, if you've got the new King James Version, it says children. Wisdom is justified by her children. So in other words, wise decisions yield positive children, or we could say results. So Jesus was saying this, the fruit that would come from both his ministry and John's ministry, it would demonstrate that they are indeed godly men um, in, the, in the end. You may not recognize that now, but time will tell. Notice here that the subject is wisdom in this verse or in the sentence. Jesus also identifies himself as wisdom. This is a, a big theological hint. See, it's through him, it's through Jesus where the Father provides wisdom. In Proverbs 8, this is so good because wisdom is, it's personalized. It's personified. Let me show this to you. Proverbs 8, verse 32. And now, sons, listen to me. Those who keep my ways, those who keep God's ways are happy. So listen to the instruction and be wise. Don't ignore it. The worst thing that we can do, guys, is to ignore God. So God says, don't ignore my wisdom. Don't ignore me. Anyone who listens to me is happy, watching at my doors every day, waiting by the post of my doorway. For the one who finds me, oh, this is so good. He finds life, obtains favor from the Lord. But the one who misses me harms himself and loves death. So at this point, guys, what Jesus has done, he's warmed up the crowd. And now he's going to give them a, a dose of truth with a capital T. Verse 20, he says this. Well, Matthew says this. He proceeded to denounce. So Jesus is denouncing. He is harshly criticizing the crowd. The towns where most of his miracles were done. So why is Jesus criticizing the crowds? Why is he criticizing these, these cities? Because they did not repent. And then he goes on to say, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. Now, for the most part, the cities mentioned here, um, they didn't really overly oppose Jesus. What they did do, however, is that they ignored him. So while Jesus preached, while he taught, while he performed all these amazing miracles, they just kept doing what they were always doing. So from your perspective, from a human perspective now, their indifference to God, it's obviously foolish, but is it really that big of a sin to ignore God? Keep in mind, it doesn't matter what, what our opinion is. It only matters what God says. So from God's perspective, indifference about him and his saving gospel message, it is one of the, one of the most wicked forms of unbelief anybody could ever have. Jesus taught on this indifference with a parable. Let me show this to you. Matthew 22, 2. He says, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a king who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to notify them, to, to notify those who were invited, but they all refused to come. So he sent other servants to tell them, look, the feast has been prepared. Everything's ready. The, the bulls, the fattened cattle, they've all been killed. Everything is ready. Come to the banquet. But the guests that he had invited, they, they ignored him. They just went on their way. They were like, thanks. No thanks. Verse 7, the king was furious. And he sent out his army to burn their town. And verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. And because Jesus is calling the many at this point and they refuse to come, he rebukes them in verse 21. So he says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. 
So Jesus uses a familiar Old, term, uh, Old Testament term here. It's the form of a woe, W-O-E. Let me give you a definition for that. A woe is doom, and it's mixed with pity and sorrow. Woe suggests both anger and weeping. So Jesus is prophesying doom on these cities, and yet at the same time, Jesus feels compassion he feels sorrow for these people. Now, up until this point, Jesus has been giving warnings, but today he prophesizes a woe. A woe is pronounced. God's patience, God's grace, God's mercy. Please know this, guys. It's not infinite. It's not infinite with an unrepentant mankind. There is a deadline. No, no pun intended there. There is a deadline on this. God's patience does have an expiration date. We don't get to choose when to come to him anytime we want. Our, our decision to say yes or to accept him as Lord and Savior, it's not based on our convenience. There are lots of woe judgments in the Old Testament. Let me show you a few. Isaiah 3:11. Woe to the wicked. It will go badly for them, for what they have done will be done to them. Jeremiah 29, 13, woe for the one who builds his palace through unrighteousness. Ezekiel 13, 3, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. That's a great verse for the so-called prophets of today. Micah 2, 1, woe to those who dream up wickedness and prepare evil plans on their beds. Habakkuk. 2.9, woe to him who dishonestly makes wealth for his house. And Zechariah chapter 11, verse 17, woe to the worthless shepherd who deserts his flock. But the oracles of woe, just not an Old Testament feature. We, we see it in the Gospels here. We also see it in the book of Revelation. John, the apostle John, the, the man who wrote the book of Revelation through the power of the Holy Spirit, wrote this in Revelation 8.13. So he sees an angel crying, and he writes, Woe, woe, woe. That's not good. Woe, woe, woe to those who live on the earth. So as terrifying as it is to hear Jesus call out a woe judgment, please know this. It's only by God's grace and this is, this is fun, right? Because the woe implies there is still time to repent. People still have an opportunity to call on his name, believe that he is God, repent from their sins, and believe in their heart that, that he walked out of his own grave. There's still time. The, the time now, Jesus is saying, look, the, the time is almost here. Not quite, but it's close. So Jesus, he's offering a shred of hope to anybody who has ears that day. Verse 21, he goes on to say, For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. But I tell you, it's going to be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Jesus performed many miracles in the vicinity of all these cities that, that we're talking about today. Uh, Capernaum was Jesus' ministry headquarters. Chorazin, just a couple miles from Capernaum. Bethsaida, that was the hometown of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Now, Tyre and Sidon, these are Gentile cities. These are wicked, wicked cities. But Jesus went there to perform miracles and preach the gospel. So when you, when you see Tyre and Sidon, uh, in the scriptures, just think Las Vegas, because that's where Jesus was. Jesus is saying here that God's judgment against sin, is, it's going to be more tolerable. It's, it's not going to be as strict for people who have never heard the gospel. On the, other, on the other hand, people who have heard the gospel, we have a greater responsibility to repent. And if we don't repent we will experience a greater judgment for our unbelief as well. 
So in other words, the people who have heard the gospel don't have an excuse. Key point number two, the more we know about the gospel, the more we know about God's word, the greater responsibility we have and the greater God's judgment. The, the more we know about the gospel, the more we understand God's word, the greater our responsibility is within the kingdom of God and also the greater our judgment. Now look, we hear that word judgment and something visceral starts to happen to us, right? We tend to shut down, stop listening. Our hearts, they, they get hard. Our necks start to stiffen a little bit. Our blood pressure rises. Our ears become deaf. And yet at the same time, it's interesting because God has built a sense of justice in all of our hearts. So let's talk about justice for a minute. Gentlemen, if, if someone knocks over your bride and steals her purse, you going to be okay with that? You're going to want justice, aren't you? Someone starts to threaten your, your kids or your grandkids. You going to be okay with that? No, you're going to want justice. We want criminals to be punished under the, the law of the land. I like, I like to watch something on YouTube. It's, you kind of see these things. It's called instant justice or instant karma. And what these videos are, it's, it's these, usually it's people driving with road rage. And you see the car come around and, you know, they're doing something stupid and they're going way too fast. They're crossing double lines and you see the person driving, they get scared. And then all of a sudden, guess what? You see the, the lights go on and you see the police officer start to follow. And 99% and, and of the time, what's the person doing who's filming this? They rejoice. They say, yes, get him. Sick him. Give that guy a ticket. Put him in jail. There's, there, we have an inherent sense of justice uh, in our lives. We want people to slow down, to obey the laws, to not hurt themselves or hurt others. It's the same thing with, with a more serious crime. If someone commits a heinous crime, they go into a school, they start shooting people. If that person lives, what happens? We demand that the judge and the jury find this person guilty. That person must pay for their crime. They've got a debt to pay to society. Now, pause for one second. How much more? How much more does God want sin punished for our moral crimes against him? Guys, we don't get to live this life any way we want. There are consequences to it. So, just like there are consequences to breaking, breaking the law, right? We, we can't steal from our employer and expect to remain employed. We can't drive like idiots and expect not to get a ticket or get into an accident or hurt somebody. So, if we understand earthly justice, how much more for the moral laws of God? So what Jesus is saying here is that when people hear the gospel proclaimed and they reject him and they reject his offer of their sins being forgiven through Christ Jesus the Lord, their guilt then becomes intensified and their judgment increases. First, or let me show you this, Hebrews 10.26. The writer of Hebrews says, Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, that's the gospel, that's God's word, right? There is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. The only sacrifice that covers our sin is Christ's blood and his empty grave. Verse 27, there's only the terrible expectation. If people reject this, People reject the gospel. There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. So in other words, there is no plan B. 
We either accept God's plan, which is the grace that comes through Jesus, or we don't. Now, when we come to the judgment seat of God, we're going we're gonna to face the perfect bar of justice. And perfect justice equals perfection. So we will be convicted for every single sin that we have committed. And we will be judged according to the revelation of God's truth that has been revealed to us. So key point number three for us this morning. The greatest mistake a person will ever make is thinking that he will escape God's judgment. The greatest mistake a person will ever make is thinking he will escape. He'll outrun God's judgment. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter 2. He says, do you despise the riches of his kindness? Do you despise God's kindness to you? His restraint, that's called his mercy. Do you despise God's patience? His, his patience with you and putting up with us for so long. Not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Wow, I love that. But he goes on to say in verse 5, he says, but because you, you're the, you've hardened your heart, you've hardened your unrepentant heart, you're going to store up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous justice or judgment is revealed. So in other, in other words, the longer you wait, the worse the judgment's going to be. Paul says he will repay each one according to his works. Now, many of us might be thinking, well, wait, time out, time out. I'm a believer. I'm a disciple. I'm justified by faith. I'm justified by faith, right? Everybody go like this. Yeah, I'm justified by faith. However, however, our deeds will still be judged. We, we will still have to give an account of every word that we speak. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. So in other words, God may have chosen you and called you to which you responded to the call and, and you've received God's grace and the forgiveness that Christ has offered through his blood. And we praise God for that. However, we can still be real jerks. Have you ever met a Christian jerk? You can still treat people poorly. You can still be a self-centered hypocrite. You can steal God's grace and never extend the same grace to other people. You can still squander God's forgiveness on yourself and never apologize to people that you've hurt or you've offended. So yes, our deeds will be evaluated and judged on Judgment Day. Verse 23, Jesus goes on. He says, oh, you guys that live in Capernaum, you Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No. How do you like that for an answer? Are you going to heaven? Jesus says, no, you're not going to heaven. You will go down to Hades. In your Bible there, circle Hades and write in hell. He's talking about hell. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. <laughs> so evidently, Jesus saved his most powerful illustration for the last here. Because Capernaum, man, it was this beautiful, wealthy fishing village. Jesus performed more miracles. He preached more sermons in and around Capernaum than anywhere else. It was in Capernaum where he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. It was in Capernaum where he healed a Roman soldier's servant. It was in Capernaum where he cast out many, many demons. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. He healed the woman with the, the bleeding issue. He healed two blind men at the same time. He healed the paralyzed man with his, when his friends dug a hole in Peter's roof. Remember that? That was all done in, in, in Capernaum. And after all of those miracles, guys, and all that preaching and all that teaching, the people of Capernaum, what'd they do? 
So Jesus tells them flat out, you Capernaum, look at these words. Will you be exalted to heaven? No. He tells them flat out, you're going to go to hell. Wow. Why does he say that? Why is he so blunt with the people of Capernaum? He's so blunt with the people of, of Capernaum. And, and please know that this is a, this is a message of love. He's still There's still time. They're still breathing. They still have time to repent. Capernaum has incurred the most guilt and will receive the harshest judgment of all the cities. Why? Because they heard the gospel the most and they saw the most miracles. Jesus is not turning all fire and brimstone here. He's telling them exactly what's going to happen if they don't repent and accept the offer of grace that he himself is giving to them. He says in verse 23, For if the miracles that were done in you had been in Sodom, it, the city of Sodom, it would still be around today. It would still be around in the first century. So the miracles that Jesus performed in Capernaum, they were so amazing that if they were actually occurred in Sodom, Sodom would still be around. Now let that sit in for a minute. Sodom is the most wicked city in all of Scripture. Sodom is famous for its wickedness. Everybody knows that. And as far as we know, the people of Capernaum they weren't blatant with their sexual sin like Sodom. The citizens of, of Capernaum, they were upright. They were law-abiding. They were decent people. The people of, of Capernaum, they never persecuted Jesus. Even fewer uh, people criticized him. They never mocked him. They never ridiculed him. They, they didn't run him out of town or threaten his life. But, and this is a really big but, because they ignored Jesus... Their fate on the day of judgment will be worse than that of Sodom. What happened to Sodom? Y'all remember? Genesis 19.24. The Lord rained down fire and burning sulfur from the sky on Sodom and Gomorrah. He utterly destroyed them along with the other cities and the villages of the plain, wiping out all the people, and every bit of vegetation. Some archaeologists believe that Sodom will never be found because it's now covered by the Dead Sea. So if you go to Israel, you can, you can go to these sites of Capernaum and Bethsaida and, and Chorazin. These, these cities were once beautiful, wealthy. They're like cities that we live in today. But now they are nothing but archaeological digs. And by human logic, right, these cities, they, they still should be thriving today. Their, their locations were beautiful. The climate was primo. I mean, it'd be like looking at, at San Diego. San Diego gets wiped off the map. And people go, well, why wasn't San Diego ever rebuilt? Because the Lord didn't want it built. The sin was too great. The unbelief was too great in the city. So the people of that city, in all of these cities, they were judged with perfect justice. What do you think uh, Jesus would say about our little city of Cottonwood? Would he give us a woe judgment? What about those of you who live in Clarkdale? How you doing in Clarkdale? How about Cornville? Camp Verde? Sedona? Rimrock? What would Jesus say? What kind of revelation have you had and maybe you've dismissed it? You've ignored God on some things here. Guys, I get it. This is a heavy text. It's a heavy text serious text today and I pray that you think about these things that 
that the Lord has revealed. I want to close with three truths about judgment. Number one, there will be a judgment. Many people think that there is not a judgment or a hell. The reason that we don't like to think about hell or judgment is because we don't want to admit that there will be one. We tend to think that when we get there, I'll cross that bridge when I get there, and God's going to wink at me because I'm such a good person. I'm a nice guy. Number two, there are degrees of punishment. The Lord revealed that to us this morning. So for, for an example, the person who doesn't repent of his repeated adultery will face harsher judgment than someone who doesn't repent of their ongoing lust. And number three, and this is the biggest one, indifference to God is the greatest of sins. God doesn't want to be ignored. And we don't think that way, do we? We think, what? Just ignoring God? Well, what about murderers and rapists and these mass murderers? That's what we think of, right? That's not what Jesus says. And and guys, look, this this is God's supernatural revelation to us this morning. Because indifference... It really is the greatest of sins because when you peel back indifference, what's the root cause? What's the root cause of my indifference, of ignoring God, or or just having this, this tendency to unbelieve? It's my pride. Pride says, I don't need God. Pride says, eh, I'm completely self sufficient. Thanks, but no thanks, God. I got it. So, all that to say, Look, dear friends, there is a price to unrepentance, and I pray that you would please ponder that today. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that that you have prepared the way for our hearts to receive uh, this message this morning. We rejoice in your amazing promises for us, and we also rejoice in the reality of this life that we live in. Father, thank you for the grace that you give through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you continue to meet us where we are. I pray, Father, that you would forgive us for our sins. And may we never, ever, ever take for granted the price of grace that it costs you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.